HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Enjoy food the way nature intended. Alaska Seafood, wild, natural, and sustainable. For more information, visit wildalaskaseafood.com. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and Three, HRN's weekly food news roundup. This week, we're celebrating pride. We speak to the bakers who created a custom wedding cake for Charlie Craig and David Mullins, the couple behind the Masterpiece Cake Shop Supreme Court case. We felt that what happened to Charlie and David was an absolute injustice. Kat Johnson addresses the controversy surrounding Anthony Porosky, Queer Eye's food and wine expert. Many viewers thought these recipes were unsophisticated. And finally, Hannah Forden speaks with nutrition educator Leah Kurtz about the relationship between veganism and queer identity. It's an interesting way in which food can challenge invisible value systems even greater than sexuality does. Listen to Meat and Three, that's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E this week, and celebrate pride with HRN. Available on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and your favorite listening apps. Hi, I'm Allie Kane. Welcome to In the Sauce, a new podcast about building food brands. We live in a culture that romanticizes entrepreneurship and the hustle. But what I really want to hear are the stories from the trek uphill. I want the stories about the bruises and the scrapes we all get as we build our businesses. I want to hear about the roads that led to nowhere and the lessons learned along the way. And I want advice in real time. This is the story of Haven's Kitchen Sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand, because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Taryn Langer, a PR superstar who's helped launch startups you may have heard of, like Casper and Dollar Shave Club. She's been featured in Business Insider as one of their top PR company picks, chosen as a member of Forbes Agency Council, and featured in Entrepreneur Magazine, The New York Observer, and many more. You're also one of the funniest, most authentic people I've met in a long time, which doesn't exactly jibe with my impression of the PR world. Um, hi, Taryn. Hi. How are you doing? I'm good. Good. I'm, good. I'm very <laughs> conscious of my voice. So yeah. I'm going to try to get over that. It's okay. <laughs> totally. You'll get over it as soon as we start talking because, um, you know, it's, it's one of those things that you start to get into. You sure. know, you'll embrace the mic, as sure. we say. 
Um, so when you were little, did you want to be a PR person? Absolutely not. <laughs> what did you want to be? Um, I wanted to be a comedian. Oh. I did. That's actually kind of perfect. Well, now I'm not going to be very funny, but um, yeah, I, I always loved comedy. I thought I could finagle my way into the world uh, right. by working at a talent agency. Okay. And I worked for one of the great uh, managers for comedians, this man, Bernie Brillstein. Uh-huh. Who Perfect repre- name. Yeah. Right. <laughs> who represented Lauren Michaels and everyone on SNL. Wow. And then I finagled my way into a job at SNL. Okay, wait. So in college, you were fully planning. This was not like, little girl, I want to be a comedian. This was in college. That's my plan. Yeah. I I, I mean, Did you ever do stand-up? It wasn't my... It became my plan in college right. when I failed out of biology. And oh, so you wanted to be a doctor? No, I wanted. To, <laughs> this is yeah. I'm going to say no a lot. Um, I wanted to. I had it in my head at some point. I wanted to um, go into forensic oh. psychiatry. I wanted to do CSI. Oh, that's right. Before because there you were was CSI. obsessed with killing. Yeah, I remember well, this now. Yeah, obsessed with other people's <laughs> killing, not not my own. So, um, but then I failed, and I did okay in English. Right, and then so you wanted to be either a detective or a comedian. Yes. Okay, and can you go back a little bit and sort of was there any connection between those two things, or like did you want to be on stage? Did you want to be? figuring things out like what was the how see the funny thing about when I was interested in comedy and and I I should be very clear I I never actually got to the place where I pursued it beyond working behind the scenes right okay so you never did like a coffee house night or something never okay which is not that uncommon I think I don't think a lot of comedians want to be in the spotlight I think there's um you know, sort of this dichotomy between who they are on stage and, right. and who they are behind the scenes. And I think that's something a lot of them struggle with. So right. I never wanted to be, I guess it's fitting that I went into PR because I never wanted to be in the spotlight. I'm much more comfortable right. with other people. In the but spotlight. you know, it's interesting because I love comedians and cars getting coffee. My favorite. Okay. Show. And one of the things that I think is so riveting is that basically what Jerry keeps talking about, he's my best friend, you know, me and Jerry. Um, He keeps kind of saying that like comedians almost don't, they actually don't feel the desire to be on stage. What they feel this deep desire to do is sort of tap into the human condition and analyze why people make the decisions they make and the stupid, crazy stuff that people do every day, all day without even thinking about it. You know, and I guess in some ways that's sort of forensics, right? Like (laughs) digging into sort of people's motivations. And also, I mean, I think it does inform what you do now. I see where you're going. I I think you connected those dots very nicely. I've never been able to see that path before. But yeah, um, I spent a lot of my time with founders and with brands trying to understand what it is they're doing, why it is they're doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically just helping them answer the question, why should anyone care? Right. So you're basically a forensic comedian. Communicator. Communicator. That's the, I'm I think the you FCC. can maybe, yeah, change your logo to say that. And we're done. 
Mic drop. So how did you go? So you worked, so you were working at SNL in college? In college. And what were you doing? I was doing a lot of things that were probably um, illegal. Okay, cool. Awesome. I was... I was like a go for, I was in the talent department. So I was basically making sure the hosts and the bands were taken care of. Were taken care of. Got it. Whatever that meant. Picking up packages <laughs> from hotel rooms and delivering it to the set. That um, sounds like the best college job ever. Yeah. Seriously. Yeah. Was it amazing? It was. I, I burned out very quickly. Yeah. It's probably the f- first and, and last time I ever burned out. Right. Um, because Saturday night, it was an all-night job. Right. There was an after-party and an after-after-party. And keep in mind, this was um, back in 98, right. 99. Um, <clears throat> so it was a while ago. And um, then I started to almost fail out of English. So <laughs> Right. <laughs> Got it. So then, so you came out of that experience knowing that you did not want to work necessarily in entertainment or in no, that. No, I that, still did. Right. I did, okay. But I knew I didn't want to work on a show. Right. Okay. Especially a live show. Yes. That was a lot of stress. And you didn't want to be writing for the show. You just wanted to be involved in it in some way. I thought I, you know, I didn't know in in what capacity. I just right. I thought I'll get in there. I'll see how things work. I'd, at the time, I didn't know right. the difference between a producer, right. a writer, all of these How different things. So I learned the ins and outs of it, and then I just I wanted to be close. I wanted to be close to the talent, right? Which I guess is sort you of where do. I operate now. Yeah. I, w- I want to be close to um, the really, really smart, really, really interesting people. Um, so then I went to work. I did the mailroom program at okay. William Morris. Got it. And then I got very close to the talent and their agents. Right. And I got to see how deals were made. And, um, and, and how did you go? So then, because basically what you're doing at that point is you're selling people. Mm-hmm. But now you don't sell people. You sell brands and ideas. Or is it that you are actually selling the people behind those ideas and brands? And, like, what was the transition? Yeah, um... I think I'm the world's worst kind of salesman in that I have to sell ideas to reporters. Mm -hmm. Um, I have to essentially try to inspire someone else to write a story, to do some work, and I'm giving them very little in return. (laughs) Right. Um, So would you say that, I mean, and we can get into sort of you know, I like that we're getting right into like what you're actually doing because I think that there's a lot here that I want to learn about and a lot of free advice that I want in this next 50 minutes. So, but would you say that the, you know, if you had a pie chart of the demographics that are the most important to you to connect and communicate with, is it the consumer? Is it the other people in the industry? Is it the press? Like who are you trying you know, who are you spending your most time thinking about how to hook? Yeah. So but maybe taking a step back, I yeah. think PR agency or sometimes we get looped in as marketing agencies, et cetera. There's a lot of different nuances between each and every one. 
So when I think about my agency, um, I think we do two things probably. Mm -hmm. The first is helping founders or if we're working with a later stage company, their, their marketing team, um, we're helping them figure out what their brand story is, what their narrative is. How do you describe yourself? You know, we we're really trying to channel where the interesting meat of the thing is. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we do media relations, okay. which is um, some might say maybe a bit of a dying practice in. Cause the media is not what the media used to be. Less so for that, more so, I think, because of social media. Right. And the fact that, you know, the internet has given rise to so many platforms where a brand or an entrepreneur or anyone can just speak directly to their customer or their audience. Um, I don't think it's the case. I would argue maybe now media is more important than ever. Ooh, interesting. So, um, So arguably the most important person in my network that I'm talking to is media, the reporters, the editors, the producers. Because at this point, I mean, so to your point about media being more important than ever, do you think that's because there's so much out there that sort of like deciding what's real and what's not real, people want to trust the people that do that? I mean, it's kind of like how everyone can write a Yelp, but I'm still going to look at a critic. Totally. Is that the same kind of idea? There's, there's a lot of noise out there. Right. And um, there's a lot of noise. I think some of the magic of online influencers has maybe dissipated because everyone's starting to catch on right. that, they're, that they're paid yep. and that's, that's just doesn't sort feel of as authentic. traditional advertising. It's not to say that it doesn't work. And, and uh, actually defining what works and what doesn't work is also an interesting point, right? That's the question I get asked the most. What's the what's best my, place to, right. my ROI on this? Right. What am I going to get out of this? And so I sort of say, if you're looking for customer acquisition, if you're looking to for sales, mm-hmm. um, it's probably going to be less so the quote-unquote traditional media, right? right. The reporters, the editors, um, producers, and maybe more so social media or branded content mm-hmm. um, or paying influencers. But if you're looking to tell that story behind your brand, right. and I, so many brands today, I mean, the vast majority of founders that I've talked to aren't just launching a product or a platform because they think they've built a better widget. They're doing it because they think it's going to have a different impact yeah. on the world or on customers. You know, They believe that there should be a different, better way that things can be done. And they are hungry to tell that story. Right. And that story doesn't really come across. So how did you, going back a little bit, how did you go from mailroom at William Morris and then working with different people? Like, What was the first brand that you oh, did? And, and you prefer PR? To marketing, yeah. I mean, and is and yeah, can you just PR. talk about the the difference a little bit between the two? Um, I think of PR as being earned; it's free. You know, you're paying your agency or your consultant, but you're not paying for that media placement. Right. I'm not. Paying, it's not an ad on a billboard, I'm, right? I'm not right. paying the New York Times to write this story. Right. Got it. Versus marketing, that's a good. Difference. You're you're paying for it. 
And plus in marketing, you have complete control over the message, right? I'm writing the tagline, making Mm -hmm. the creative for the campaign. Um, And in PR and media relations, you're sort of putting the ingredients. (laughs) I'll use some food references. Thank you. You'll put these ingredients in front of a reporter and they're going to make whatever dish they want. Right. Got it. And you can, and I mean, okay, so now you. Okay, so how did I go from William Morris to, I mean, that was a twisty, windy, weird road. I think um, I'll I'll kind of skip to the highlights. I went into entertainment PR. Okay. um, And I did that in London in 2000. It was an interesting time. It was the early aughts, (laughs) I believe (laughs) as they're called. And um, I was launching... Hannah Montana and oh. High School Musical. Oh my gosh, I did not know yes, that you did that in London. Do you know how much I love High School Musical? Well, my kids like mock me to this day, but I I like cry every time, and I'll watch it sometimes when I'm by myself. Just FYI, oh, um, yeah, that's so, weird. Okay. I know. <laughs> we'll talk about it later. So um, you were in London. I couldn't mm-hmm. get. I couldn't land an interview for Miley Cyrus to save my life. Really? No one knew who she was. And I was this American on the line saying, trust me, it's big in America. Trust me, trust me, you're going to want to talk to her. Yeah, her her people were upset. But I think I got something in the end. Right. Um, And then moved back to the States and was working with um, a couple of interesting brands. We were doing... um, agency I was with we were doing the TED conference okay so that was very cool right so that's that's more ideas and and like a yeah right and a brand yeah I think I kind of got roped in we were doing um they were doing some books and some documentary films and that's how it sort of waned because when you work for an agency you're sort of given a book right of clients you have to take whatever they give you right um and I was lucky enough to uh, Sony was um, had just acquired a small video startup out of San Francisco uh-huh. that was being rebranded. It's now called Crackle. Okay. And I was in the Valley. Right. Off and on a couple months while, while the acquisition was happening and to do the press. And I just remember being blown away by the fact that these founders mm-hmm. were like around my age. Right. We were all under 30. I couldn't believe it. I'd never seen a CEO under 30 right. before. And that's, you got excited. I got so excited. Yeah. I, and thought, I thought they're actually listening to me mm-hmm. and taking my advice. Right. And they're not looking at me like some kid. Right. So after that, I said, that's it. I'm only working with startups. Yeah. That's so cool. So we're going to take a little break now, and then after the break, we'll get into all of the advice that I should probably be paying you for that I'm not. Sounds good. I went down to North Carolina Realized there was surely nothing finer Think about what it takes to swim a coastline longer than the entire eastern seaboard and leap tall waterfalls in a single bound. 
What does it take to survive 200 feet deep in icy salt water? What would you be made of? Wild Alaska seafood is made of tight muscle mass, long chain omega-3s, and incredible micronutrients. It matters where your food comes from. Experience the flavor of the fittest in every bite and enjoy food the way nature intended. Alaska seafood, wild, natural, and sustainable. Ask for Alaska on the menu, grocery store, or smart device. For more information, visit wildalaskaseafood.com. Running from the out on the land. Hi, I'm back with Taryn Langer, founder and president of Moxie Communications Group. Um, and now I basically want to milk you for all sorts of advice on communications. And I will start with my own company um, because we're not a startup, but we've been around for six years and we are starting up this new sauce line. And I feel like every day, you know, I'm doing the Instagram or I'm writing a deck for someone and I don't, you know, I don't have a style guide exactly, but I feel like there's so many things I want to say, whether it's about Havens or about the sauces. I have so many different messages and there's so many things that we do and that it does. I feel like if I had like, a, a you know, one thing that that just did one thing, then my communication strategy would be a lot easier. But I feel like I'm almost sometimes paralyzed because there's so many things that we do. And so how do you help companies kind of weed through all of the various things that we do and we do well to really get the story clear? Because I feel like after six years, it's still not as clear as it should be. And I don't want to make that mistake with sauce. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, it's what I spend probably most of my days uh, helping companies sort through. So um, I think the one thing to sort of accept at the beginning is to realize you don't have to boil the ocean all at once because at the end of the day, someone's going to really only remember you for one or two things, right? When you right. recall brands that you love, it's either especially in food, it's either it's so delicious mm -hmm. or it makes something else taste so much better or it's so easy and convenient for me to put together. Oh my God, this is crazy that I'm getting this for this price or right. health reasons, et cetera. So I, I think the beauty of the information overload also means that we can get really specific with different messages across different channels and we can tell them time and time again so the one question you probably want to ask yourself or maybe even ask those around you, your colleagues, if you've been around for a really long time mm -hmm. that you might not be consciously aware of is how do you talk about the brand organically? Are you sitting there talking about what it is you are, how it is you're able to achieve what you achieve or why you exist, what your purpose is? And I think if you can naturally tap into answering one of those three questions, you can naturally be guided to what are those things that make us different, special, memorable. And then you benefit from having been around for five plus years right. to be able to also tap into your current customers and find out why do they love you. Right. You know, if they're eating sauces in the cafe, 
what do they love about them so much? So I think customer research, market research um, can be an interesting tool too to help you get there. But, um, and really just asking, yeah, because I feel like, you know, let's take the sauce, for example, since it's like the, you know, the new sort of CPG element of things. They can be used as five different things, right? They can be used in a recipe or on top of a recipe. They can be marinades. They can be dressings. I can't tell you the number of people are that I love your dressing. You know, it's like when people say, I love your restaurant. I mean, Havens isn't a restaurant. and, And it can be used as a dressing, but it's not a dressing. And I feel this like every time that happens, I'm like, I have failed in getting across what we are. But yet, in I, I can't sum it all up in a sentence. You know, you were working with a friend of mine and you were saying that, you know, what you guys do is you take sort of their identity and you write a page and then you write a paragraph and then you write a sentence. Right, keep chipping away. And it. you just keep going. And, and I was like, gosh, I don't know if I could do a sentence for... I could do a sentence for sauce. Well, you can, especially when you have someone else helping you. You know, when it's your own baby, it's hard to edit. It's hard right. to chip away at it. Um, when you put it in the hands of somebody a little bit more objective, I think you can get there faster. But I want to go back to what you just said, which is when someone says, oh, my gosh, I love your dressing, you feel like that's a failure. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yes. Well, that might be more like a therapy discussion for me than like a branding. But right. I see where you're because, going. Because that's another thing almost as an entrepreneur. I think at some point, once you make something and you put it out there in the world, you have to accept that you're going to lose some control over it. Right. And if you're making something that somebody loves... However, if However they like to they bathe in it, it, it's fine. I love your bubble bath. You can make a face mask <laughs> right. out of it. I love that peanut. Um, yeah. You know, you're making something that somebody loves and um, that somebody's making their own, right. right? In their own kitchen, in their own home. So m- maybe that, in a sense, you know, if, if we go, if, if we broaden out the research base beyond that one person, right? you know, maybe that sort of guides you to the fact that it's so delicious and maybe you sort of tap into your own mission, which is, as I understand it, getting more people to cook Yes, because it's so much better for the environment. Right. And maybe there's something you're doing that's really different from right. other brands, which is letting people personalize and customize and you're just giving so them funny. something delicious that they can then make their own. It's so funny because... <laughs> Now that you're sort of like putting the mirror to my face, that's exactly why we don't have, you know, it's all we have on the back of the package are these prompts, you know, because really we want people to do what they want with it. So the fact that like, I actually am trying to control it in a way. I think we did a little bit. I mean, it is, I, I can think back because when I first opened Havens, I had, it wasn't a full service cafe. It was all retail. It was shop. You know, and it had like things I thought were pretty and things I thought were useful. And yes, they sold, but they, what people really wanted was food. And so it was actually a little bit of a struggle for me to give up my vision of what I thought it was going to be and have it become my customer and my guests vision of what they wanted it to be. And I kind of pride myself on that transition, you know, because it, you know, people do call it like market research and I just call it listening to, to my guests. 
Um, but I think that's actually funny now that you're saying the, the dressing thing. I should just be like, well, I'm glad that you like the dressing. You can also use it as, a, you yeah. know. Yeah. Um, so do you, you work mostly with, with startups, yes? It, well. Or do you get called in to fix things? I, I get called in to fix a lot of things. Right. Some days I feel like I'm on scandal. Right. And Ooh, I, love I should be saying ridiculous things to people. With a goblet like, of wine. Like you published that story and your career is over. <laughs> but I would never say those I things. Think, can, and those you things just, can you no, try a week like where you do that stuff and just get, see what happens? I would get laughed out of the room. That's Plus so I, I couldn't keep a straight face as I said that. <laughs> um, but maybe behind the scenes I'll, I'll put on that facade. Yeah. Um, no, we work with a lot of later stage brands now. So, it, you know, what happened was very early on and sort of we kind of glossed over the the point Mid. at which I l- launched Moxie, which yes. was very ha- haphazardly and very unintentional. Well, let's talk about that for a second, since this is also about building businesses. And, you know, what basically pushed you over the cliff? Well, so when I used to get asked that question, I would always say, do you want the real story? I only or, want the real or story. Or do you want right. the good story? Right. And I sort of think we're at this fabulous place in time where the real story is now the good story. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sort of exactly what I this. love the millennials for that. <laughs> I do. I do. I love them for that. I love that I, that I don't have to be embarrassed that I self-funded. Right. I used to be embarrassed by it. Now people are like, you That's go, amazing. you invested in yourself, Bootstrap. badass you. And I'm like, oh, wow, really? I used to think that was sort of embarrassing that I didn't like crawl the streets and beg for money. And give away half your company. Yes. Okay, go on. So um, so, um, so my kids were young. Right. And I was grinding it out at another company. And um, there was that sort of natural moment where I think, you know, woman, mid Mm thirties, young kids, my kids were three and one. And I sort of felt like, well, I'm not doing the greatest job at home right now, or I could be doing more at home. And even though I was a workhorse, I sort of felt like, okay, I could be doing more at work too. I could be traveling more. I wasn't going out West as much. And so I sort of felt like there was this imaginary force saying, make a choice, make a choice. Mm -hmm. And, um, between being a mom and being a working a working mom. right yeah and so i chose my family nice and um that lasted exactly 1 month right perfect <laughs> and, um and yeah i i went back to work and i took on a couple of clients and and it turned into a thing and it turned into a thing and it's a thing by the way a lot of a lot of women you know yeah obviously now this is a, a huge conversation but it's it's a really hard it's a really hard place to be when you're just starting to really hit your stride you're getting into a management role at mm-hmm. work you're having kids um and everyone's pushing themselves you know to be the best they can be right. you know meet their limits all the time and um I realized, you know, if I did it on my own terms, I, you know what? I realized what it really was, was um, there there was something, there was something a little bit more fulfilling doing it for myself. Yeah. Too. Well, it, yeah. And it made almost the grind of it feel somehow a little bit more worthwhile, yeah. I, I think. I mean, in my case, I don't think I was hireable. On, I know, for real. Like I hadn't worked in 
you know, 15 years or 16 years, my experience in the early 90s as an urban developer had nothing to do with anything that I wanted to do. And I just figured, I don't think it even occurred to me that someone would hire me. I had five kids under eight. You know, I mean, it was just not an option. So it was an option sort of starting something for myself. And, and I thought at the time being able to sort of make my own hours and and that went out the window. I don't know why we think, you know, and people are still like, well, but you can make your own hours. I'm like, what? No, I can't, you know. Yeah, I can I mean, make them seven days a week. Exactly. No. Um, I mean, I can, I, can, I can show up for the class play, right? you know, which I am very grateful for. Right. And I can show up for the doctor yeah. most of the time. And now, uh, you know, and now it can go and it can create that for the people who work around right. me too. Which is, which is I think, which where... Is what, yeah makes it really worthwhile. So when you're called in sort of as a fixer, what, you know, what I'd love to do is reverse engineer, you know, how do you, how do I not make the mistakes that they make that by the time you're called in, you're like, ugh, you know, what, why, how, you know, which is, I know, I know one of your questions that you like to ask is what are the chapters of your, your books? (laughs) Right. Chapter one is always crisis PR and crisis planning. I think you want to, in, in every industry, whether it's a food business or a, a, or you know CPG mm-hmm. or a technical product you're putting out there, um, I think you do have a responsibility to think through worst case scenario, all of the scenarios, you know, what will I do and how will I talk to my customers through good and through bad? So oh, that's great advice. Because people only think about PR too is yeah. as you showed when you're getting it out there. This, let's get it out there. Let's get everyone using it. Right. The, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And you don't really think about the unintended consequences. Oh, I have a I'm I'm not gonna name the company, but um many, many years maybe a decade ago. Uh-huh. I worked on a very infamous photo sharing app that when the CEO first showed me this app that he had created, I mean, I had tears in my eyes. I thought this was going to connect the world. This was going to change the world. Oh my gosh. I can't believe I get to be a part of this. And we launched to a ton of fanfare. And then one week later, um, Uh there were just, can I say penis? Yes, you can. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you can say penis. There, um, there were just penises all over. I think you can even say dick pics, I think. Okay. Is that... Well, okay, I, David, I'm getting the thumbs up, yeah. Okay, well, I, I want my mom to <laughs> okay, listen to right. this. This Sorry. is my first yes. podcast. So okay. <laughs> I'm going to say penis. Um, there were just tons of penises flying <laughs> all over this photo app and then um no one started to use it so then there were only like a couple penises on this app which is even worse <laughs> like just, if you're gonna have penises you should have a lot of them <laughs> just like four lonely penises on this app. and it was an epic failure and at the time when we were launching this somehow this had not occurred to anyone that that if you could just take a photo and magically everyone within a 50 meter radius would get to see your photos and it would foster amazing conversations and connections nobody thought a lot of 
people are going to take pictures of their penis and send it around. So what happened? I mean, what did you do? And what did they, I mean, is it, did it go away or did you, yes, yeah. It went, I mean, it went, it went away and I was, oh, I, I mean, I remember like two weeks before the news broke, I was at a, like a two-year-old birthday party or something for my son and I'm telling everyone at the party, use this app, take these pictures and We'll all get each other's birthday photo <laughs> pictures. And then we're swiping through the birthday photos. There's just a penis from the guy in the building next door. Oh, it's terrible. Oh, my gosh. Terrible. That's amazing. So you always so, want to think yes, of worst case scenario. that is a very good case in point. Advance. That's definitely chapter one of your book also because now I have to read the rest of the book because I'm like, my stomach hurts at this point. <laughs> so, um... So yes, so so number one advice is think about what's going to happen if there's God forbid a recall or if something bad happens. Right, plan through that. And you know the solution more often than not is always the same, right? Right, which is honesty, humility, address it quickly. Mm -hmm. Nobody, you know, everybody knows that when it takes the airline twenty four hours to respond to something, you sort of have a room of suits (laughs) gathered around trying to figure out. How can I give a non-apology apology right. here in this situation? Right. I don't think anyone has ever, um, you know, uh, thought anything less of a company when they said, right. mistake My bad. here, right. we are addressing it yeah. you know, immediately. We're doing everything we can. We're here for you. Right. Okay. So that's reverse engineering technique number one. Yeah. What else do you think companies should do earlier than they do I think, you know, I think um, there's sometimes this thing, this sort of, you know, artificial um, narrative that gets placed on companies, which is when you evolve or when you iterate on a product, right, Mm -hmm. that it's a pivot, that the first product failed and thus you had to do something different, right? So if suddenly you're doing your sauces and you're like, oh my gosh, this is great, I'm going to... What's do pancake mixes. Pancake right. mixes. Well, the the sauce has failed, so now she's going to see if she can make pancake mixes stick. Right. Even though the sauces are still around. Right. It sort of sometimes makes a juicier story in right. press that way. Um, it's not all the time, right? Right. It's, sometimes it's called growth. Right. Sometimes it's called evolution. Expanding the product line. Exactly. Right. But I think you really want to... Um, think about where you want, you know, where the company is going to go one year, two years, five years, mm-hmm. and leave that door a little bit open. You don't want to be so myopic in the beginning. I mean, I don't think you ever walk around calling yourself a sauce company. Right. I think you want to do so many things. That's yes. the challenge. I sometimes see the reverse where people are so myopic, so granular that they're really um, potentially pigeonholing themselves. That's a great little tidbit. Is there a number three? God, um, if you hold my feet to the fire, I'll come up with one. If you don't come up with a number three, um, what would Olivia Pope say? <laughs> she would make very aggressive threats right now. Um, how dare you ask me that question? <laughs> um, Do you have more fun? Let's put it this way. Do you have more fun starting with a blank slate? Oh, totally. And, and is that because they haven't fucked it up? Am I allowed to say that, David? Yes. Got a thumbs up. Sorry. Um, 
Yeah, it's a lot more fun because my contribution, you know, in that sense, I'm a little selfish, right? And I feel like, oh, I'm making such a great contribution here. And plus, I mean, you know, I don't want to take half of the clients I work with now are sort of fast growth or even public companies, right? right? We work with everyone from a company like Dollar Shave Club, which I launched out of my basement. They were sort of one of my first clients all the way through their acquisition, Casper's a startup that's growing really, really quickly right now. Did you meet Casper early on? Like, did, oh, I did. I yeah. started working with them months before they even launched. When and it was five founders, they were like, "We don't like mattress buying the way it is, and we want to just change that." And well, they can had, you help us tell the story. Like they that? had a product, right. and they had their brand. Um, but again, it was sort of like who. Oh, okay. Well, here's another way to think about things too, which is who's the enemy? Who's the enemy we're going to pick on here? Are we going to pick on all the other mattresses out there and try to say ours is the best, most comfortable mattress? Are we going to pick on the retailers and this sort of archaic experience Mm -hmm. of thinking we know what's the best mattress for us after rolling around on some (laughs) public mattress for... (laughs) 30 seconds with a creepy guy watching us. Yeah. Or, or, you know, this it's sort of like this behavior that's been ingrained in us. Right. Um, so, so who are we really challenging here? Sometimes with food, it might just be a really bad eating habit, a really right. bad behavior, misinformation, et cetera. But it is in that case. I mean, my, of course my wheels are spinning because I'm thinking, you know, the only alternatives for people right now to like add to add flavor or add life to their stir fries or their, or their, you know, chicken dishes or whatever it is, are these, are these, you know, shelf stabilized, not particularly flavorful, not fresh. So it is in that sense, like, even though I say there's no comp because Mm -hmm. we're the only people doing what we're doing right now, it's instead of thinking of it as a comp, think of it as like, who are we challenging? Who right. are we taking on? We're, we're taking on hamburger helper just as much as we're taking on, you know, totally. Tomato well, I, th- sauce. I think you sit in a, it, the other thing when I, when I start working with companies mm-hmm. right away is not just, you know, I'm not just asking them what's authentic to you and your brand and your mission, right? but what's the environment that we're in right now, mm-hmm. right? When you put something in front of, um, another person, a consumer, um, you know, what else is going on in the world that's going to impact that decision? So in your case, I think we're sort of at this interesting place where, yes, it's great. We have all these, you know, meal kit delivery services and you sort of feel like you're, you're doing something and it's good is getting people in the practice of cooking rather than ordering in or microwaving something. But at the same time, it's very rigid. It's yes. very regimented. I mean, I sort of feel like it's a lot I, of pressure. If I don't put yeah. every pea in this plate, I'm gonna, you know, right. ruin the whole meal. Yeah. And there's very little room to be creative in that whole right. process. So it's sort of like this very rigid mm-hmm. process. Or, you know, maybe I can experiment and create something from scratch, but that's also very difficult. I right. mean to make a sauce from scratch. Right, I would argue is probably one of the hardest uh, parts of cooking in general. Right, is is making the sauce. Right, um, or yeah, I get something yucky out of a can or a jar that's right. been sitting there for God knows how long. So if you can sort of occupy this territory where it's 
you know, you have some creative freedom. Right. But it's almost like it's... But it's not so open-ended that it's intimidating. I would call you cheating, right? Hack. Hack is a nicer way to put it. You should go into communication. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) But it's going to, you know, you're going to eat something delicious. You know, it's just up to you to make sure it's cooked. You know, it's up to the the person buying it to make sure they've cooked that protein well or whatever. Exactly. You're going to make sure it tastes delicious. Right. So, I mean, no, that's really helpful. So going back to Casper for a second. So did they, did you, first of all, you were like in in the thick of it from very early on, which must have been really fun. And did you sort of help them pick their enemy? Did you? We did. Yeah. We did. We workshopped for a really long time on who that enemy was um, and what what that brand personality, what that story would have been and what we walked away with was just this very obvious sort of hitting you over the head moment, which is, Okay, everything, you know, every mattress company that's out there right now is um, kind of hitting you on the head with this prescriptive idea of how much you should sleep and how often you should sleep and right. what's right for you, depending on if you sleep on your back or your stomach, et cetera. Um, and they were also, you know, taking a step back, getting very granular in this idea. They were just a mattress company, but nobody was really building a brand around sleep. Right. Right. There was no sort of you know, Nike for athletics or Starbucks for coffee. There was no brand that really owned sleep Sleep. and like a positive, like a positive celebratory sort of way. Yeah. Um, And it was a really collaborative experience too. I mean, I would say the best client experiences I have are Mm -hmm. a, those clients who always take my advice and listen to me. Yes. They are going to be the best because you know best. Yes, I do. And the ones who are really collaborative in the process and, and very involved because How, it's it's their baby. I mean, I think, and that goes to sort of that authenticity piece, right? Because I have this, I've had this mindset for years and it's not really fair. And I have friends that work in PR and in marketing and we work with many PR and marketing people that do amazing launches and activations at Haven's Kitchen. So I'm not sort of maligning the world. I just, for me, it felt like no one could tell my story as well as me. And every time I thought about sort of reaching out for that kind of PR marketing help, it felt like somehow I was going to lose, like lose my connection with my own baby or my own brand. Like it's, it's been, I just haven't been able to let it go that way. I know I'm going to need to at some point, but you know, how do you, how do you listen to someone's advice? I mean, basically you are a part of the brand. Yeah. So you're not an outside voice. You're like, you're like a surrogate. You're like a live in other mom. I'm an au pair. Right. I'm a brand au pair. Yes. Um, it ha it has to feel that way. Right. Right. Because otherwise it feels so, um, I mean, PR gets like turn the them out worst, a little bit, right? The worst yeah. rap ever, and maybe in some cases deservedly, but um, yeah, it feels very kind of like transactional, right? Um, and, and you know, I I understand that these things are hard to measure. You know, there's that rule. I'm sure you know it, like where someone sees your thing seven times and then they think to whatever or something like that. I don't prescribe to any of those rules. Okay, I have a very I I. 
I mean, the vast majority of my clients, even though now I sort of would describe them as challenger brands, brands trying to, mm-hmm. um, you know, disrupt. upend, right. disrupt, right. That's, that's a banned word in, in my industry and in tech. <laughs> disrupt is banned. Yeah. Yeah. No. I mean, it's kind of like authentic in yes. the food world. It's yes. definitely, yeah. Um, but curate, curate. <laughs> yeah. Iterate. I used that one earlier. Yeah. But, um, you know, most of the people I work with are data-driven scientists, engineers. And so to not be able to qualify or quantify what the result of something will be. Um, But again, that's sort of like the influence of the great media institutions out there um, carries a lot of weight, you know. Um, it's changing and there are new media institutions emerging and some amazing new media companies coming around. That's cool. Um, but it carries a lot of influence and a lot of weight. So if you said at the beginning that, you know, someone holding, you know, cause as an event space, right, we've seen, we saw a lot of emphasis on events and then we saw a lot of emphasis on events plus influencers and then we saw less, less about events and more just, you know what, if I have $10,000, I'd rather give it to these people and have them take a picture with my product than have a party, right? And so we sort of weathered that. And now, now the brands are starting to understand that the experience really does carry a lot of weight and that that experience should theoretically be producing the content and that sort of, yeah. you know. Well, I... I th- so I think events are really, really important. We do a lot of events for our clients because most of our clients now start off as, um, at least our clients in the commerce space, right. um, start off as direct-to-consumer. Right. So there is no, like, in real life, brick-and-mortar way right. that you can interact with the product. And so, um, and even in some cases, if it's a digital product, if it's an app, if it's, um, you know, we work with one app called Finery that um, essentially helps you organize your entire wardrobe in the cloud. There's no real way to feel that or see right. that or experience unless you're on right. the app or, you know, what a pain in the ass it is as a woman to pick out your outfit, right. you know, But I can day. see the perfect event for that where you, there's you, know, a you have to, that closet and you're in it and you're, you know. Yeah. Right. If there's a way that you can bring it to life or that right. you can manifest what the benefit is um, if it's a digital product or you can create an experience where at scale you bring influencers, you bring media to right. interact with the founders and everything. It's worth that $10,000 because you could bring 50, you could bring 100 people, right. 200 people and to they're an all event. posting about it. Do you know Casper had a party at Havens very early on? I don't, did you know that? Well, no, but now they're in trouble for not inviting. <laughs> you weren't their, invited? They're lead PR oh, person. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Casper. <laughs> I told, they told me not to tell you. And okay. I forgot. Okay. It was, but they did this breakfast in bed event where we made breakfast in I bed. Do it was really fun. I do remember And that like event. people were like, you know, enjoying French toast and eggs and orange juice and I wearing pajamas rem- and things like that. I remember that event. That yeah. was year one. Yeah, that was great. Yeah. So Sage of all sages, what do you think is sort of the, what's going to happen? I mean, social and traditional media and all these new things. It's 
content is very expensive for us to be making on our own. Very. I mean, I don't know how, I don't, I feel like, and I mean, you know, again, a lot of our, a lot of our sort of love from our consumers comes from Instagram, but every day I feel like I'm seeing more and more sponsored and sort of stylized content. So what's the next thing? Um, robots taking over the world. Okay. I think cool. chapter two with <laughs> my book would be something about obeying the algorithms because the scary thing is that, um, as we all know, with Facebook and Instagram and social media, we are getting served up this, yep. this junk food diet of what the algorithm thinks we want to see. So I know I someone it, told me that. I mean, I have 22,000 followers, but not all 22,000 see every post yeah. at all. Yeah. And depending on what they've liked, they see more of that. So people who like, like the food photos tend to see the food photos, but they don't necessarily see the event photos or the quotes or, and it just is what it is. And you just have to obey the algorithm. You have to obey the algorithm or... Uh, you have to figure out how to get hacky and, right. and disrupt it. You have to, I mean, social can be great to, to draw people to your own site. Um, it can be great because hopefully different new people are discovering, right? They do a lot of that um, pattern, you know, mirror recognition. I'm not quite getting it straight, but right. if your friend likes something, you might get served up what your right. friend then liked. Right. Um. But I think the the issue is um, most brands don't know, and they don't know how those things work, and they don't know when Facebook or Google or someone is going to flip the switch. Right. Um, so, and when they it, yeah. do flip the switch and change their algorithms, a lot of companies get very hurt by it. Yeah. And so that's why it's always good to have a profile in a legacy publication, because they're not changing that algorithm. Sure. Right. Sure. I mean, that's why. <laughs> I still like print. Yeah. You know, I can still control how I, right. you know, I sort of know what my sections are and where I'm going to find what I want to find. Um, but that's a little outdated. I, I can't really say that as a PR person anymore. <laughs> so my last at. question is how important do you think it is for the founder or, you know, specifically in my case, I don't necessarily want to be out there in quotes, right? I don't, I don't, I don't want it to be about me, mm -hmm. right? But I do feel like people want that a little bit and they want to know who I am and they want to know my values. And, and do you think that it's sort of a must for founders to sort of be out there? I, okay, this is, this is maybe a contradictory answer. I should, I should start off by saying when I sign a new client, I, I tell them I'm working for the brand. I'm not right. working for the individual because I've seen, you know, I've been with brands from day one as they grow, as they IPO, et cetera. And so I've, I've been with them through CEO changes right. and so on and so forth. And um, I wouldn't be doing my job right if I was there in, to, in service of one individual. Right. right? I, I have to do what's, what's best for the brand. Um, at, at some point, I do feel like the founder has um, a bit of an obligation to be the shepherd of that brand right. 
and to go out and be the voice of the brand because brands do, you know, will ultimately need a voice. Um, and so you have to have somebody out there right. delivering it. If, if you're going beyond just, um, you know, images and advertising and marketing, right. does, does that have to be you? Do you have I to mean, suddenly gonna, yeah. reveal your thoughts and your opinions on issues maybe unrelated to the brand? I mean, sure, we see a lot of people connecting with brands today because of their stance on politics right. or social issues, but we've also seen a lot of brands stay out of that fray right. and still succeed. And I think there's even a backlash sometimes when you're like, you're a right. brand. I don't want yeah, you I mean, I don't know why, why is my opinion value? You know what I mean? I think that's part of it. It's not so much. It's, yeah. it's more that I'm like, who? Wh- why do I think that I need to weigh in on this. They're they're much smarter, much more educated, much more engaged people than I am on that issue. For me to then be like, this is what I think, you know, sure. I you know, sure. So. But um, yeah, but when I think people want to know, you know, what you love to eat or right. where you like to go, or you know, they're sort of looking at you as a tastemaker when it comes to lifestyle related questions, right? that's your that's your choice whether or not you want to do it right. i i think if people have a connection to you and and have a connection to the brand and it's in service of the brand right. maybe you have to get a little uncomfortable sometimes yeah i have i've pushed i've pushed you're doing this well this is fun did you have fun i surprisingly did yeah all right do you have any final thoughts or um, do you have like a statement that you'd like to make in the end <laughs> I will not be running for any political office anytime <laughs> soon for all of those I, who... I would knows. vote for you. I'd also definitely go to see your stand-up. I just admitted admitted to doing a lot of illegal things during this podcast. I know. But you didn't give us any details, and I'm the one that said the F word. You didn't That's even true. say dick. <laughs> I'm, I'm, am I blushing right yeah, now? Yeah. <laughs> On that note... David, <laughs> thank you so much, um, as always, for being the raddest engineer ever. Um, if you have a company and you need an amazing PR strategist, um, Taryn Langer from Moxie, thank you so much for being thank here. Thank you for having um, me. This I is could, a real treat. Seriously, I could talk to you forever. I'm still like kind of giggling. Um, and we'll see you next time on In the Sauce. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.